From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. The federal government may close down at midnight Eastern time, the latest this hour from Congress and our own Ron Elving. Later in the hour, what a shutdown could mean for the federal workforce in and residents of Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Then federal aid for child care is ending. What will that mean for daycare in America? And Amy Schneider, Jeopardy champion, who knows the answer to just about everything, it seems, and also believes in tarot cards. What I believe is that, is that it's a, a tool for self-reflection. It's a tool for understanding yourself. I won't tell you what lottery number to buy. What's the point? First, our newscast at Saturday, September 30, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The federal government could begin shutting down at midnight tonight if Congress does not act before then to keep the government funded. And as NPR's Hosma Khalid reports, White House officials say Republican extremists would be to blame. 1.5 million federal workers and an estimated 2 million military service members are expected to go without pay if the government shuts down this weekend. Many would still be expected to show up for work. The Office of Management and Budget coordinates shutdown plans, and Shalonda Young is the director of the OMB. I know it's not popular to defend federal workers. I know it's not. But a lot of them live paycheck to paycheck. They get repaid. What are they supposed to do in the meantime? The White House has been calling on, quote, extreme House Republicans to stop playing political games with people's lives. It points out that Biden negotiated a bipartisan deal just a few months ago to fund the government. But key House Republicans aren't keeping their word. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The White House. The Senate is set to hold a procedural vote today on its own plan to tide the government over in the short term, but it's opposed by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy because it includes additional aid for Ukraine. He's now proposing a clean stopgap measure with no attachments. President, former President Trump ripped California Democratic leaders during a speech in Anaheim, California, in front of the state GOP convention from member station KQED. Marisa Lagos reports. Appearing before a packed luncheon of state GOP delegates, Trump took aim at Democrats, including California Governor Gavin Newsom. But while California was once a symbol of American success today under the radical left fascists and Marxists that run your state, that's who's running your state. Bad people. It's becoming a symbol of our nation's decline. Gavin Newsom and the far-left communists in Sacramento. The former president also claimed he could win the presidential election in California if it wasn't for what he called a, quote, rigged voting system. He blamed mail-in ballots for his nearly 30-point loss in California in 2020, a state where fewer than one quarter of registered voters are Republicans. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in Anaheim, California. Overseas now, Armenia's government says more than 100,000 ethnic Armenians have now fled Nagorno-Karabakh after Azerbaijan took control of the disputed enclave in a military offensive earlier this month. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt reports. The exodus from Nagorno-Karabakh has been unrelenting. An estimated 120,000 ethnic Armenians were living in the enclave before Azerbaijan seized control of it 10 days ago. That means about five in every six Karabakh Armenians have fled, taking with them what possessions they can. The United Nations says it's sending a team to assess humanitarian needs. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts will face several effects from the government shutdown if federal lawmakers can't come to an agreement by tonight. Nearly 25,000 federal employees are based in the state and could go without pay. The shutdown also could affect programs that help feed low-income families, air traffic controllers pay, and housing subsidies. The Middlesex County District Attorney's Office and Lexington Police are investigating a non-fatal shooting in the town last night. The DA's office says the parties involved knew each other and were transported to the hospital. The next head of the AFL-CIO in Massachusetts will be a woman for the first time. The Boston Globe reports that Chrissy Lynch is running unopposed to replace retiring President Stephen Tolman. It's 59 degrees in Boston. Some rain around highs today in the low 60s. WBUR supporters include Seed. Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. It's 8.05. In under a minute, Weekend Edition Saturday, we'll have an update on the looming government shutdown, and you'll get a range of programming from Weekend Edition. But just for a brief moment, we are asking you to think about how much you count on WBUR every day. On the radio, online, with podcasts, with newsletters, at City Space, all the ways you keep up with what's happening in Boston and the world. You have let us know in a variety of ways how important WBUR is in your life. So we hope you've concluded that this is worth your monthly contribution of maybe $10 or $20. Your monthly giving helps give WBUR a strong, sustainable future. So please make your tax-deductible monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call one 800 Once again, that's 1-800-909-9287. Or you can make your monthly contribution at WBUR.org. And thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. Federal agencies are on a track to shut down at midnight. Congress has failed to approve a short-term funding bill to keep the lights on. A group of hardliners defeated House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's plan to fund agencies for a month and add border security. And it is unclear that the Speaker can get the votes to pass much of anything. And your congressional correspondent, Deidre Walls, joins us. Deidre, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. The Senate will work on its own bipartisan bill this afternoon, but does it look like Congress can really avoid a shutdown or even wants to? It doesn't look that way. You know, both chambers are still on very different tracks. You never say never, but practically speaking, there's no bipartisan path to avert a shutdown. The question right now is how long is it going to last? House Republicans tried, as you noted, and failed to pass their own stopgap bill. That was directly tailored to get support from hardline Republicans. But 21 House Republicans defied Speaker McCarthy. Today, the Senate has this procedural vote to advance their bipartisan bill that funds the government through mid-November, also includes $5 billion for disaster aid and $6 billion for Ukraine. 
But McCarthy has rejected that. So right now he's trying to get House Republicans to agree to pass some type of short-term bill later today, potentially one that would keep agencies funded for several weeks. But can House Republicans agree on next steps after the failed vote yesterday? You know, the speaker's really still struggling. Many Republican lawmakers, even beyond the 21 hardliners who opposed the bill yesterday, still have issues with other ideas. Arkansas Republican Steve Womack said last night if they can't pass their own bill, House Republicans may ultimately have to accept what the Senate does. You know, there's college football games on later today, and Womack used an analogy that shows that House Republicans just aren't playing as a team. We're the governing majority. This is what we're supposed to do as a governing majority. We're supposed to lead, and it's kind of hard to lead when you got a you know, significant number of people that, uh, that are on the wrong snap count when you call them play. Deidre, is the president getting personally involved in the talks? He's not. White House Budget Director Shalanda Young made it clear the negotiation that set the spending levels for the government already happened. The speaker agreed to those levels in the debt deal that passed Congress earlier this summer. The reason we're in this situation right now is that McCarthy walked away from that deal and gave in to conservatives who are demanding steeper cuts. Young says this is on House Republicans. This is not an exercise in reopening negotiations. We negotiated at the speaker's request three months ago. Deidre, how quickly will, will American people begin to feel the impact and effect of government shutdown? Well, since the shutdown is going to start on a Sunday, the impacts won't be felt right away. But on Monday, millions of federal workers are, are going to be furloughed and won't be getting paid. National parks and Smithsonian museums in Washington are going to close. One program that provides nutritional assistance for roughly 7 million pregnant, postpartum women, infants, and children is expected to run out of money in a matter of days. Active duty service members in the military will report to work but won't get a paycheck and other workers at the Border Security Agency and TSA for the same. And the speaker isn't working with Democrats? He's not. And hanging over his head is this threat from the far right to oust him if he ever cuts a deal with Democrats. Right now, he's sticking with a plan that's going to help him keep his job over something that would avoid a shutdown. And Pierre Deidre Walsh, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. The MAGA extremists across the country have made it clear where they stand. So the challenge for the rest of America, for the majority of Americans, is to make clear where we stand. That, of we course, still believe in the Constitution? That, of course, is President Biden, and it's different than the clip that I had indicated in our script. We'll try and get things cleared up. Uh, House Speaker McCarthy said just a few months ago that— uh, uh, we were celebrating the fact just a few months ago that Congress in, in May had lifted the debt limit to avoid a default, but there are differences between then and now. Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Uh, the magic number to get something passed in the House is still 218. Uh, why was Speaker McCarthy able to get there in the first couple of days of June, but not this week? The difference in June was that the crisis was the debt ceiling, and it was more widely understood to be a crisis, a serious threat to the well-being of the U.S. economy with implications around the world. The sense of real risk pervaded the Capitol, so 
Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans were more motivated to reach a deal ahead of the deadline. McCarthy struck a deal with President Biden, as we've heard, and allowed a bipartisan vote on it. And that deal actually wound up getting even more votes from Democrats than from Republicans in the House. Mm -hmm. But that only angered and embittered McCarthy's critics on the right, including some of the holdouts who had opposed his election as Speaker back in January. They've been vowing revenge all summer, and they saw their chance here this month. A September is when both House and Senate must pass the bills that fund federal functions for the new fiscal year, which ends at, well, begins the new fiscal year at midnight tonight. The Senate has not endorsed or has endorsed but has not yet finished its own bipartisan compromise, as Deirdre was just telling us. That would keep the government open a while and provide the time for more negotiation. McCarthy could bring that to the floor, Mm -hmm. probably pass it easily with Democratic support. But again, that would trigger the vote to remove him as leader of the Republicans. House Republicans uh, did make time this week to lead a hearing on the impeachment of President Biden. Did it seem to convince those in the chamber who are undecided? Uh, The first hearing did happen this week, but uh, it made little news because it contained little that was new. The House members who are driving this process all seem to have seen a movie in their heads called The Biden Crime Family. Uh, But it's not a movie most of the country has ever seen. Uh, We're told it's based on a true story, But we have yet to see the movie as they describe it. Uh, This week's event included a well-known law professor, Jonathan Turley. He's testified in Hill hearings before and often pleased the Republicans Mm -hmm. who call on him to testify. Uh, But this time, he said he had yet to see evidence to justify impeachment in this case. And that seemed the opposite of what they wanted to hear. Ron, your assessment, please, of the Republican presidential contenders who debated Wednesday at the Reagan Presidential Library. Uh, Millions watched that debate this week, and you have to wonder how many of them saw a president, uh, much less a Reagan-like president, amidst all that crosstalk and the bickering. Half of the candidates seemed to be running for vice president, if there's another Trump term in the White House. The other half were former Trump supporters who have turned against him, such as Chris Christie and Mike Pence and sometimes Nikki Haley. Uh, The latter group seemed to be staking out a place in a world that may come after Trump hoping that such a world will be reality sooner rather than later. And Ron, once more, I want to play a bit of President Biden speaking in Arizona Thursday. The MAGA extremists across the country have made it clear where they stand. So the challenge for the rest of America, for the majority of Americans, is to make clear where we stand. Do we still believe in the Constitution? That's an extraordinary question, isn't it? Yes, rather stark and fundamental. And it's a foretaste of the Biden campaign against Trump in 2024. On Friday, honoring the retiring chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, Biden spoke again about the loyalty oath that all federal officials take to the Constitution. Not an oath to a party or an ideology or a king or a dictator, Biden said, and not to a would-be dictator. And that not-so-subtle jab was a hint at what we'll hear if Trump is indeed his opponent once again next year. And, of course, uh, also elsewhere in our show, we will uh, have remembrance of Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein. Uh, NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott.
WBUR supporters include Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, on view now. Learn more at PEM.org. Hi, it's Robin Young. WBUR needs more members and member dollars to fuel our journalism. So we're looking for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to give WBUR a strong future. Join us. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Or you can give by calling 1-800-909-9287. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. WBUR's Candace Springer is in the studio with me, and together we are urging you, you, yes, you, to become one of those 2,500 listeners uh, to become a monthly contributor to WBUR. That monthly contribution is what keeps our journalism strong, uh, not just for you, although that's extremely important, but for the entire community. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Yes, as Sharon said, starting an ongoing gift of $10 or $20 a month is pretty much the best thing that you can do to help secure a strong future for WBUR right now and the journalism that's essential to all of us. And if you're already giving monthly, maybe consider adding a dollar or two to what you currently give us each month because small amounts have a significant impact over time and your gift will become so much more um, than the amount that you give. So call 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. And on Point host, Magna Chakrabarty talks about how your contribution of $10 a month or $15 a month will create something much bigger. I love climbing the mountains of New England, especially partial to the New Hampshire ones. So, you know, when, when you get to the top of Mount Monadnock or any New England mountain and you see the, the cairns there, the little pile of rocks that people have added every time someone summits and you put your your rock on the cairn. It always reminds me of my absolute favorite Disney movie of all time, technically Pixar, but Disney movie, Moana. Really love that film. And there's a scene in Moana where she goes to the top of the mountain on her island with her father. And there's a cairn there at the top of the island and it's every every chief uh, that her people have ever had. And he says, when you, he says to Moana, when you lay your stone on top of this island, you raise us all higher. And to me, in a sense, that's what great journalism does and that's what contributions to great journalism do. Your contribution is like that stone added to the edifice of public service journalism. And when you add that stone, it lifts us all higher. It makes our journalism better. and. So that's why I think it matters. It matters to give um, because you make a, it makes a big difference to what we can do uh, and how we can serve people. Um, and it lifts us all, our entire community. 
So know that WBUR wouldn't be here without the financial support of our listeners, as Megna said, their monthly contributions. And we hope yours right now will make up the biggest share of our funding this year. And you can give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we have some special gifts to say thank you, right, Sharon? Of course we do. (laughs) We've got a really nice WBUR umbrella. It is very wet out there today. So this is the perfect gift. If you can give even $10 a month uh, and uh, monthly contribution, we have got you covered with a beautiful black umbrella, opens and closes, covers you all the way down the street as that rain is hitting you. That could be your gift today. What else do we have, Sharon? Ooh, we have something truly um special and a little bit weird. Um, (laughs) If you give right now, this is the key. You have to give right now because this is a very limited uh, time offer. And if you give right now, you could possibly win one of three limited edition, wait, wait, don't tell me, varsity style jackets. Now, why do we have these? Well, we'll tell you because the um, um, well a while ago. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Um, back when it got its start on NPR, the show created these these uh, leather and wool baseball jackets, and um, it was they created them for their staff. Um, and we just found three of them. These are vintage. They are vintage and they are awesome. We are looking at one right now. Yeah, it's pretty um, cool. And it is really cool. It's got the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me logo. It's a very, very sturdy and um, perfect for fall. Amazing jacket. And uh, it is truly uh, uh, honest to say that this you are never going to get this chance again to have this jacket. So if you're planning to support WBUR anyway, please support us right now with your monthly gift. Make that contribution by noon today and you get the chance of winning one of these jackets. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Relief agencies in Armenia say they believe they are seeing the final wave of refugees crossing over from Nagorno-Karabakh. The UN Refugee Agency says they're prepared to take in as many as 120,000 people, which would amount to the entire ethnic Armenian population from the enclave inside Azerbaijan. NPR's Peter Kenyon is in Greece, one of the main arrival points for refugees. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. What do you see there today? Well, I arrived this morning and I found uh, quite a few weary aid providers assisting what appeared to me to be quite a large crowd of refugees. Uh, But the agency workers say the traffic is slowly but surely thinning out. And it's possible, they say, that after this weekend, virtually everyone who's able to cross will have done so. I say able because that won't likely include everyone who may want to cross through. Uh, Azerbaijani officials have said there are an unspecified number of people who could face arrest in what they call counterterrorism operations. But so far, more than 100,000 people have crossed, according to the latest official figures. Some 80% of the population believed to be there 
before this all happened. Now, I met Tatiana here in Guri. She's a doctor with an Armenian foundation, provides assistance in emergency situations. Uh, she says it's been very busy day and night diagnosing patients, providing medicine for ethnic Armenians who, in many cases, haven't had access to proper health care for months. As a result, she says, it's a mix of ongoing care, chronic conditions that have worsened due to lack of medical treatment, and injuries suffered during the trek from the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. What will happen to those folks? Well, they are dragging their belongings, uh, the ones they could carry, onto buses, uh, which are headed to various parts of Armenia. Uh, one common theme seems to be they do not want to resettle anywhere near the border with Azerbaijan. Uh, the capital, Yerevan, is a possibility but housing shortages have plagued the capital for some time now there. I'm hearing anecdotally that some of the refugees are saying, well, what about somewhere in central Armenia? That sounds quiet. It is largely farmland uh, with the consequence that they may not be able to find economic opportunities, the ability to earn a living. But the buses are rolling out of Greece, uh, heading to various parts of this country of less than three million people. You mentioned the Armenian enclave that was begun in the early 1990s. Uh, officials now say that it, it will be dissolved. Um, it'll be a thing of the past. What does that mean for relations between these two countries? Well, those relations have not been cordial and certainly worsened dramatically when the Armenian enclave uh, inside Azerbaijan was established. Azerbaijanis say that land was effectively taken by force with thousands of people displaced or killed. Now officials in the Azerbaijani capital Baku are saying they don't object to ethnic Armenians living in their country, but they will have to submit to Azerbaijani rule. And people here are saying after the long history of tensions and hostilities, that is unlikely to happen anytime soon. Whether some future diplomatic effort might bring about better relations remains to be seen. What about international relations and alliances? How have they come through this? Well, this has uh, many people here scratching their heads. Armenia has traditionally relied on Russia for security protection and support, an arrangement they've had for something like over a century. But Moscow made no effort to forestall, prevent, or push back against this Azerbaijani siege of the ethnic Armenian portion of Nagorno-Karabakh, or then the sudden push that drove some 100,000 people across the border to Armenia. The West also made no move uh, beyond rhetoric to calm the situation, we should note. Uh, one alliance that seems to have remained strong through all this is the one between Azerbaijan and Turkey. President Erdogan visited Baku recently and has couched the most recent events as some kind of self-defense, uh, which, needless to say, is hard for people here to comprehend. And there's Peter Kenyon in Goris, Armenia. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. Most of the federal government's pandemic relief money for child care ends today. That's going to hit daycare, daycares hard. One idea about what to do now to make sure daycare survives, make child care free for people who work in them. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, there's evidence it might make a big difference. Where is Arlo? Where is Arlo? I don't know. Ah, the sounds of daycare, so sweet and yet so expensive, especially for parents of little ones who aren't yet in school. Parents like Courtney Settle, who has a three-year-old she adopted as a baby, and now she and her boyfriend are trying to grow their family. We realized very quickly that the cost of an infant in a childcare center was going to break our bank. She's thought hard about their options. I mean, we could sell our car, I guess, to pay childcare, but 
Then how do we get back and forth to work? For a while, she had two jobs, her dream job as a middle school social worker and a part-time job at this daycare center in West Virginia. It's called A Place to Grow. But she recently made a tough decision. She quit her job in the middle school because after working for three years at the daycare, she gets an employee benefit, free childcare for her three-year-old. I mean, I, I took a pay cut of almost $10 an hour to be able to come here, but I had to because by the time I paid childcare, I wouldn't have come out any different. The daycare's owner, Melissa Calagrasso, is thrilled to have her. Getting anyone to work in childcare is hard these days. Around here, there's competition from Sheets and Walmart and... The school system. West Virginia now requires elementary schools to have teachers' aides. Every childcare director's a little scared of what that's done. Calagrasso struggles to afford the free childcare benefit. For babies, she only ever gives a discount. She says it would help a lot if the state provided the benefit. And as it turns out, that idea isn't so pie in the sky. In fact, it's already happening one state over. Jennifer Washburn owns iKids Childhood Enrichment Center. In Benton, Kentucky. We're in far away western Kentucky. And since a year ago? Any of my teachers who have children, they can work for me and their children are paid for by the state. She calls it a beautiful incentive. So what led to this? Well, in the pandemic, Kentucky saw a sharp drop in the number of low-income kids attending daycare. And Sarah Vanover, who was then director of Kentucky's Division of Child Care, says that was true even after the state made many more families eligible for subsidized care. We still didn't see an increase in our subsidy families. They weren't going back up. And we were like, what is going on? Well, what they figured out was, yeah, people needed child care, but they couldn't find spots. One reason was, in the pandemic, the state required smaller daycare classes to prevent the spread of COVID. But a bigger problem was daycares couldn't find anyone to work. They had empty classrooms with no teachers. A lot of that, she says, had to do with the fact that Target started paying $17 an hour. Domino's Pizza was starting people at 15. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, daycare teachers make $12 an hour or less. So <laughs> when, when you're thinking like, okay, I can work with all these kids in a very labor-intensive job and make very little money, or I can go to Target and stock shelves and make $5 an hour more, it's not a contest for working parents who need to support their family. Vanover thought about the childcare workforce. These are people who love kids, who have kids, who struggle to pay for their own childcare. A year ago, she helped push through a rule change, making all childcare workers eligible for subsidies, regardless of household income. Right now we have over 3,600 children that are being served because they have a parent who's a childcare provider. Of course, this costs money. Depending on the county, the state might pay a couple hundred dollars a week for infant care and less as the kids get older. But here's the payoff. Childcare centers are finally able to fully staff up, which means far more daycare slots available, allowing far more parents to go to work. Sarah Vanover says word has gotten around about what Kentucky's doing. I know that we've had over 30 states reach out to me and ask questions. <laughs> and that's not surprising. With no agreement in Congress on extending the federal relief funding for childcare, it's up to states to think outside the box to ensure that children and their families are served. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Hey, impending government shutdown got you down? Well, bears are indifferent, and you can still enjoy Fat Bear Week. Watch the contestants on bear camps as they bulk up to prepare for hibernation 
in Alaska's gorgeous Katmai National Park Preserve and vote for your favorite Ursine resident. Hear all about the bears and the ecosystem that keeps them alive. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, you can tune in tomorrow live on your phone or smart speaker or <laughs> something called the radio. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Celebrity Series with Jazz Along the Charles. Hear 25 bands play one set list along the Esplanade October 7th. Free to all. Jazzalongthecharles.com. And Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd. Bridgew.edu slash events. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio is Candace Springer. We are reminding you that you will hear the Scott Simon essay uh, on Weekend Edition coming up in just moments. But first, we want to let you know about a very exciting opportunity for you to triple the power of your monthly contribution to WBUR. We have a triple match in effect for just the next few minutes and that means that when you give $10 a month, uh, WBUR gets $30 a month out of that. You give uh, $20 a month, WBUR gets $60 a month. How do you do it? Well, all you have to do is call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And just a reminder, we are looking for 2,500 new monthly contributors to WBUR during this fundraiser. So now is the time where not only can you give that gift, you can maximize the impact of your gift. $10 becomes $30, $15 becomes $45. And if you can even give it $100, that's three. Hundred dollars to WBUR. We are in a triple match, and this is the perfect time to increase the impact and the support of WBUR with your contribution. You can do that at 1 800 909 9287, or you can give online at WBUR.org. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view, to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully. And there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio. I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I... (laughs) Thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention, and I care deeply about it, and I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. Clearly, you and Laura Dern have a lot more in common than you might have imagined because she is a listener and supporter of public radio 
And so are you. We are asking you to make your monthly contribution right now. And here's why the right now part of that really matters. A triple match is in effect. Some generous listeners gave WBUR their money so that your monthly contribution could be tripled. This is only in effect for about the next six minutes. So do this now when you give $15 a month. The triple match turns that into $45 a month for WBUR. If you were able to give $100, a month that becomes $300 a month for WBUR. 1-800-909-9287. That's the phone number for making your monthly contribution. You can also start that monthly contribution by going to WBUR.org. And you have only about eight minutes to get in on this triple match. So if you've been waiting to give WBUR a gift during this fundraiser, now is the time. Starting an ongoing gift of $10 a month or $20 a month is the best thing that you can do to help WBUR have a strong future and secure all of the journalism that is essential to us. That triple match is on the table. So we amplify that gift right now. $10 becomes 30 as Sharon said 15.45 larger gifts 100 300 dollars this is the perfect time to support WBUR and say thanks and we will continue to cover you as well go to 1-800-909-9 oh sorry 1-800-909-9287 or wbur.org pets have their own language it's part of their charm They paw, scratch, sniff, slobber, yowl, and display affection, anxiety, devotion, and delight in the most direct ways. They beg for head pats and belly rubs, stalk crumbs and sneak snacks, and occasionally they snap. President Biden, who must already contend with Congress, foreign powers, the economy, and climate crisis, may now also have to worry about the deportment of one of his dogs. Commander, the Biden's two-year-old German shepherd, reportedly bit a Secret Service agent at the White House this week again. This is the 11th report that Commander has sunk his incisors into a member of the Secret Service. Agents may begin to wonder if their sworn duty to protect the president and their family should also entail being a doggy chew toy. Elizabeth Alexander, communications director for Jill Biden, issued a statement on what someone might begin to call Bitergate. The White House can be a stressful environment for family pets, it said, and the first family continues to work on ways to help Commander handle the often unpredictable nature of the White House grounds. Major, another Biden family dog, has already had to be relocated from the White House after several biting incidents. All the sirens coming and going, lights blinking in the chop-chop-chop of the President's helicopter landing and leaving, summit meetings and state dinners... No pets allowed. Same with press conferences and cabinet meetings. You never know when the Honorable Secretary of something or other might be allergic to pet dander and start sneezing just as the president signs an executive order. Professional and college sports champs come to the White House with a team jersey for the president. Foreign dignitaries offer gifts of state, fountain pens, rugs, and art. But I've never seen them bring along so much as a squeaky duck for a presidential pet. Peanut butter? Not even once. Don't you think that at some point you might begin to snap? This weekend, as Congress fails to pass even a short-term spending bill and another government shutdown looms, wonder if the president might convene another meeting of congressional leaders and this time invite Commander into the Oval Office. 
Do we have a budget deal, the president might ask? Or do I tell Commander, sick him? And you're listening to NPR News. Millions of people depend on the NPR network. We depend on you. Your support is central to our journalistic integrity. Donate to this station today, and thank you. ...is WBUR. You can make your monthly contribution by going to WBUR.org. You can also make a phone call, 1-800-909-9287. What you'll be doing is giving to support WBUR. And the reason to do that right now is for just the next six minutes, a triple match is in effect. What that means is you give now and your monthly contribution to WBUR will be tripled. It's a rare triple match. Get in on it by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. But as Sharon said, time is of the essence. I mean, we have just six minutes in this triple match, now heading into five minutes for you to maximize the impact of your gift to WBUR. And our role is to keep bringing you the news of the moment and to tell you the stories that you're not hearing anywhere else. We know how much you rely on WBUR during your day. We would love for you to show us that with a monthly contribution to WBUR. And with that triple match, you will maximize that impact. $10 becomes $30 a month. $15 becomes $45. If you can give a larger gift of $100, that becomes $300. Generous listeners have stepped up to triple your contribution today. So you can do that at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is Ira Glass of This American Life from Public Radio International. One of the things that makes public radio different is the way that it's funded. We have the most idealistic system, the fairest system, the best system in the world. That is, those of us who listen all the time, those of us who like the kinds of stories and shows and analysis and music and authors that are on this radio station every day, those of us who like that kind of thing, we all pitch in together, and that's how it stays on the air. Public radio equals public support. If you can help out, give a call. And you can do that at 1-800-909-9287, or you can go to WBUR.org. And a reminder, some generous listeners have stepped up to triple match your monthly contribution for a year. So if you can support us right now, in the next four minutes, your gift will be tripled. So $10 becomes $30, 15 becomes 45 Now is the time to help maximize your gift to WBUR. It's almost like some sort of fairy tale magic. Yeah. You know, you take this $10, <laughs> you know, you, you, you take this $10 bill. Here, make it $30. Boom, happens. And it is actually happening. This is not a fairy tale. You mm -hmm. are listening to WBUR. You appreciate WBUR. So please, right now, get your monthly contribution to WBUR tripled for a year. And here's how you do it. You make a phone call, 1-800-909-9287, 
or you go to WBUR.org. One of the most rewarding parts of our work is knowing how meaningful WBUR is to so many people in Boston beyond. We read it in your emails and comments, and we're grateful to all of you uh, who share your feedback with us. Know that we wouldn't be here without the financial support of our listeners, their monthly contributions, and we hope yours will make up the most reliable share of our funding for the year. And we have this triple match on the line. So if you give a gift right now in the next three minutes or so, your gift is going Going to go even further. 1-800-909-9287. Right, Sharon? Absolutely. We're down to about two and a half minutes of this triple match being in effect. Uh, we know your Saturday mornings can be very busy times, and so that's why we're asking you to just pause briefly. The whole trans- transaction takes you very little time, and you make your monthly gift, and it will be triple matched. So here's how you get the process started. You can make a phone call. 1-800-909-9287. You could also do the exact same thing by going to WBUR.org. And we have some special gifts to say thank you if you're willing to contribute right now. If you can give even $10 a month, we will give you a WBUR umbrella as our thanks. Listen, the weather has been weird lately. <laughs> Rain everywhere. And we have the cutest umbrella. It says, we've got you covered. WBUR has got you covered with the journalism and we've got you covered with this umbrella. So if you can give $10 a month, we'll give you that as our thanks. And that $10 a month becomes $30 a month because of this triple match that we have on the line right now. So if you can give any amount, we are going to triple that because of some generous supporters on the other end. So you can do that by going to 1-800-909-9287. That's a phone call. Or going online to WBUR.org. And you know, this monthly gift that you are about to make, that will be matched for a year. Not just matched, triple matched. It is a very, very uh, uh, powerful way for you to show your support for WBUR. And you can only do that for the next approximately 45 seconds. Ticking. Clock is ticking. (laughs) Clock is ticking. Please take action now. Go to WBUR.org. You can also call 1-800-909-9287. Your monthly gift will be triple matched for a year. It's an incredible opportunity for you to support the station you count on. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. If you've already made your contribution, we thank you. If you haven't yet, now's the moment. WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, Partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Congress might be getting closer and closer to shutting down the U.S. government. And in the District of Columbia and surrounding areas, many are grappling with what a shutdown might mean for the local economy and for their own families and business. 
Margaret Barthel from member station WAMU joins us now in our studios. Thanks so much for being with us, Margaret. Oh, it's great to be here, Scott. You've been speaking to people. Uh, What do they tell you about what concerns them now? Yeah, I mean, it won't surprise you to hear this, but there are a lot of federal workers in D.C. (laughs) uh, and and the region, about 400,000 across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia out of the 2 million total. Um, And then you've got hundreds of thousands more military service members and government contractors who also live here. So setting aside what's going on on the Hill, you know, the shutdown is really about the local economy here, how it impacts local businesses, what it could do to tourism, whether residents on furlough need extra social support from local governments. And and obviously, we have some recent history to guide what this might look like. What has it been like in D.C. and surrounding areas in past shutdowns? Yeah. In the 2018-2019 partial shutdown, which lasted more than a month, uh, the D.C. area lost about $1.6 billion in economic activity and wages in the first month. Um, Some wages, of course, were paid back eventually. Uh, But back then, that all meant a really quiet downtown, longer lines at food pantries, fewer tourists. Um, And with more federal workers remote these days, instead of downtown, the impact could be a little bit more spread out across the region Mm -hmm. and the country. Now, that, that was a partial government shutdown. This would be a full one, right? Yeah, right. In 2018 and 2019, some parts of the government did have funding, including the military. But in 2013, we had a full government shutdown for 16 days. And so that included defense spending. And defense is a huge part of the regional economy here, too. Uh, the Pentagon is in Virginia, um, and there's yeah. a big military center down in Virginia Beach and Hampton Roads area. Um, one estimate said that defense money directly or indirectly funds almost 900,000 jobs in Virginia. Um, So that's huge. Margaret, tell us about the effect, and not just on on white-collar capital staffers, but on on people who support their lives. Right. I mean, we're also talking about janitorial staff in federal buildings, cafeteria workers, security guards. Um, you know, many of those lower wage workers are contractors. Um, and, you know, because there are a lot of workers in the federal government who are not actually employees of the federal government. They're paid by a separate mm-hmm. company. Um, and so federal workers are guaranteed back pay, generally speaking, but contractors um, often are not. So in the immediate term, uh, you know, everyone will be trying to make ends meet without a paycheck, but it may be especially challenging for some of those folks. Where, Where can people go for help? Yeah, well, in the past, you know, it's been social services organizations and local governments who've really had to step up when the government shuts down. Um, I talked with Jeff McKay. He is the chairman of the Board of Supervisors in Fairfax County, which is a suburb of about a million people. Um, It's home to a lot of federal workers and active duty military. He says Fairfax is better prepared than the last shutdown uh, because they got really good at distributing aid during the pandemic. But that also cut both ways. You know, we're not in a position to sustain long term, especially on the heels of COVID uh, relief that we're still providing to people in our community. So this is a hard time for local governments and a shutdown certainly won't help. <laughs> Margaret Barthel from uh, member station WAMU. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Time now for StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, recording and sharing the stories of service members and their families. Sergeant Daniel Moon joined the U.S. Navy in 1944 during World War II. 
choosing that branch because he could enlist at the age of 17. He later served in the U.S. Army during the Korean War. At the age of 96, Daniel Moon told his daughter Laura about a battle that continues to haunt him. March 7, 1951 was my first day in combat. And oh, right away, bullets were flying at me. They seemed to say, pity you, pity you. That's the sound of bullets, like, I pity you. They're sneering at me, but they all miss me. And I drew myself down in a sprawl, and in front of me, the trench line opened up like the devil opening his mouth to show his fangs. And I fired a whole half of a magazine right into that mouth, and I could see bullets hitting their winter tunics that they had on, and I could see the blinking out white tufts of cotton, and I knew they were dead. My mouth was all dry and nausea coming up, but I held it down, and then a guy shouting, move over, moon. And all of a sudden, boom, a huge explosion, blew blood into my face and into my ear. I woke up about 10 yards away on the other side of the ridge, and after I recovered and went back to the crater, I saw this group of three or four men. They were blown up right at the spot where I had been. Me and my buddies, we took our helmets off and looked down at the pitiful sight. And from that pile came this shout. Hey, you guys up there, when you get back home, will you write us an epitaph? Let it say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. 96-year-old veteran Daniel Moon. Versions of that epitaph have circulated since World War I, but Sergeant Moon doesn't remember hearing it before that day on the battlefield. After their recording, his daughter Laura came back to StoryCorps to reflect on their conversation. I didn't really have any expectations about the conversation. I was hoping he would talk about some of the humorous things that happened. And I wasn't really sure if we should talk about the real combat. But as it happened, that's where the interview went. When we were growing up as kids, my dad really didn't talk about his war experiences. Maybe he didn't want to traumatize us. He just maybe had buried them. But he had made up a poster that had the names of his buddies who had been killed. And he carried this poster every Memorial Day parade with a saying underneath it. We gave our today for your tomorrow. He believed his three buddies were talking to him. And that is what they said. My dad and I have not been that close all these years. And, um, some of the stories that he talked about, that was the first time I had heard them. And I can now see him as a young man going through some really harrowing things that most people can't imagine having gone through or being in a position to have to bear. 
that's Laura Moon remembering her StoryCorps conversation with her father. Their interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Master's in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders. Professional.brown.edu. The Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. And you can also call 1-800-909-9287. Our fundraising goal is for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. The monthly contributions are what give WBUR a strong, sustainable future. You can do that by going to WBUR.org or by calling 1-800-909-9287. At WBUR, we're doing everything that we can to help foster understanding about the most important issues around all of us. But the challenges we face are enormous. Growing into a digital media age and sustaining our newsroom as others have dwindled and collapse comes at a huge and constant expense for WBUR. So the solution is pretty easy. Uh, if you can start a monthly gift for WBUR or add a dollar or two to your existing monthly gift, that support is the best thing that you could do to secure our future. You can do that by going online to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's right. Your monthly gift of $10 a month or $30 a month, whatever amount is right for you, supports the journalism in the WBUR newsroom, uh, such as by our colleague, uh, Miriam Wasser. Hi, I'm WBUR environmental reporter, Miriam Wasser. So Sam Woodman is a young climate activist, and she told the story of what happened during the big nor'easter of 2018, when the street she lived on in Revere just flooded really severely. You can see the ocean from Pearl Avenue, so it's really pretty. It's kind of like this quintessential small town street, even though it's in the middle of Revere. And I remember Sam pointing to this one spot that was maybe 15 feet away from her house, and she said, this is where the water comes up to. This is where we all know that if there's a storm coming, we do not park our cars below this point. So when the nor'easter hit, Nobody parked there. Everybody parked much farther up the street, but the waters came up in a way that they had never seen before, and that's how they all got in trouble. There was a, a neighbor across the street who had been there for decades, and 
she told me a story about what happened during the storm, that the water came up into their backyard. They're used to the backyard flooding, right? But when the big storm came, the water just came pouring into their basement. We evacuated. We actually evacuated. The water was up to my husband in the middle of his chest in the basement. But I was just really touched by how tight-knit this community was and how attached everyone was to this specific street. This is a working class neighborhood and climate change is going to disproportionately affect those who can least afford to protect themselves. And this story tells us that. We hear so much about climate change and sea level rise in Massachusetts. And here's a story of where it's, it's impacting people. These are the stories that we need to hear and these are the stories that we need to tell so that we can really think about how we're going to tackle this. Help Miriam Wasser tell us more of the stories that we need to hear and read to really understand the effects of climate change. You can do this. This reporting does not happen without listener support. So please start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And if you can give just even $10 a month, we can send you a really nice gift as a thank you. We've got these amazing WBUR umbrellas. They say we've got you covered on them. It's been wet out there. It's the perfect gift right now if you can give $10 a month. And also you'll be ensuring that WBUR has a future and that we will be there to cover you for years to come. 1-800-909-9287 or give online at WBUR.org. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition. Thanks for supporting Weekend Edition here on WBUR with your generous monthly gift, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The Senate is preparing to vote on its version of a short-term spending bill to keep the government funded past midnight. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports a bipartisan measure, though, is likely to be dead on arrival in the House. The Senate advanced the stopgap bill earlier this week, but it's unclear whether a vote will take place before government funding is set to run out at midnight. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says lawmakers are coming down to the wire. As I've said for months, Congress has only one option, one option to avoid a shutdown, bipartisanship. With bipartisanship, 
we can make good on the deal reached earlier this summer to avoid default. Schumer slammed House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for going back on a budget agreement that he struck with President Biden in June. With just hours to go, both chambers are running out of time and options to figure out a way forward. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Speaker McCarthy is floating a last-ditch stopgap bill after a two-hour meeting with Republican lawmakers last night. He said it would keep the government going for two weeks while the House works on a longer-term spending plan. The Education Department has laid out a new approach to the prospect of student loan relief, this time by helping specific groups of borrowers, as NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. On Friday, the Biden administration outlined how it would now pursue student loan relief through a drawn-out process known as negotiated rulemaking. This is the next step in the administration's campaign to provide relief to borrowers in need. The plan identifies five key groups that the administration hopes to aid, including borrowers whose balances are greater than what they originally borrowed, whose loans are decades old, and borrowers who have experienced financial hardship and need support. The Supreme Court struck down the administration's initial policy for blanket debt cancellation in June. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. In Michigan, a lawsuit seeks to keep former President Trump off the state's primary and general election ballots. From Michigan Public Radio, Rick Pluto reports that the uh, the suit claims Trump is not eligible because he violated the insurrection clause of the Constitution. Michigan's Democratic Secretary of State says she cannot keep Trump off the ballot without a court order. The case before the Michigan Court of Claims seeks to clear the way for her to do that. Ron Fine is the legal director at Free Speech for People, which filed the lawsuit in Michigan and a similar one in Minnesota. He says Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to stave off future rebellions. Insurrectionists can't be trusted to return to power because if they are, they will do it again or worse. Fine says it's possible legal actions to keep Trump off the ballot will be filed in more states. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation is condemning the looming government shutdown. Senator Elizabeth Warren warns that military members and 25,000 federal workers in Massachusetts will not get paid on time. The shutdown also could affect programs that help feed low-income families and could affect air traffic controllers' pay and housing subsidies. A former state senator in Massachusetts is under indictment for violating state ethics laws. The attorney general's office says Fitchburg Republican Dean Tran used his Senate staff to campaign for him during their regular workday. More staffing problems are leading the Steamship Authority to cancel some ferry service this weekend. The authority says one of its ferries will not make scheduled trips between Woods Hole and Martha's Vineyard from 11 this morning through 10 a.m. tomorrow. It's 59 degrees in Boston, some rain around today and highs in the low 60s. WBUR supporters include Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com slash public. 
It's 9.05, and in just moments on Weekend Edition Saturday, you will hear from Congressman Jamie Raskin. The Maryland Democrat is discussing negotiations to try to avoid a shutdown of the federal government at midnight. But first, as you await that, please give a moment to think about how much you rely on WBUR. On the air, online, with podcasts, with newsletters, at City Space, all the ways that you keep up with what's happening in Boston and the world, you have let us know in many ways how important WBUR is in your life. So we're asking you to please make a monthly contribution. Your monthly giving helps keep WBUR strong and gives WBUR a sustainable future. Make your tax-deductible monthly contribution at WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. The U.S. federal government is just hours away from shutting down non-essential services. Congress has to approve a spending bill by midnight tonight, or more than 3 million employees will be furloughed or have to work without pay guarantees. Representative Jamie Raskin is a Democrat who represents Montgomery County, Maryland, which, of course, is home to many federal workers. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. And firstly, let, let me just offer condolences on the uh, on the death of your colleague over in the Senate, Diane Feinstein. Well, thank you. Yeah, everyone was rocked by that yesterday, um, coming at an already difficult time because of the shutdown news. And I was hoping it actually might change the mood uh, over on the GOP side to the extent that people might focus on a solution. But so far, no luck on that. Uh Friday, yesterday, you and a number of other Democrats voted with right-wing Republicans to oppose Speaker McCarthy's stopgap funding bill. Uh, Why? Especially because, as we noted, you represent so many federal workers. Well, this is an emergency situation. Um, We had a deal with Speaker McCarthy back in May on how to avoid precisely uh, this moment. As you know, there was their last effort was to plunge us into an economic crisis in the country by defaulting on our debt. And so we foresaw that they would try and do the same thing here. And we made a deal with them and we just want them to stick to the deal. Um, Of course, the extreme mega element reporting to Donald Trump, they don't want any aid to Ukraine. They want now a 30 percent across the board cut in the budget, which is not what we agreed to. And they they really do want to plunge the government into a crisis here. So it is um, an extreme mega faction uh, that McCarthy has lost control over after appeasing them ever since he took over the speakership. I, I know Ukraine funding uh, and and border security that Democrats want and border security measures Republicans want. So you don't see this as a compromise you could accept until a full budget can be hammered out in a few weeks? Well, right now, there's a total agreement among the Republicans in the Senate, the Democrats in the Senate, the White House and the Democrats in the House. All of us agree on a clean continuing resolution that will include uh, $30 billion in disaster assistance Uh, for Americans who've gone through all of these climate catastrophes and then uh, aid to the people of Ukraine. Uh, Everybody agrees to that except for a handful of rampaging uh, mega 
extremists who really look like they're following Donald Trump's advice, which is to shut down the government in order to shut down his federal prosecutions. He really believes he won't be prosecuted if they plunge us into this nightmare. Back in May during the debt ceiling crisis, some Democrats said that that just wasn't the time to take on the nation's $30 trillion debt. They said Congress ought to do that when it drafts the budget. Congress is now debating the budget. Are the Democrats serious about addressing debt? Well, we absolutely are. Um, And uh, Biden has confronted the debt far more aggressively than Donald Trump ever did. Um, What we're trying to get people to focus on right now is what this is going to mean in the lives of real people. We're talking about these slashing funding for WIC. We're going to be affecting moms. We're going to be affecting kids, slashing funding in the SNAP program. We're talking about cutting nutrition for millions of Americans. I spoke to a constituent uh, yesterday from NIH who said, uh, a, a doctor there who said, we're not going to be able to enroll new participants in clinical trials for critically needed medicine in cases of cancer, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia. I talked to a constituent this morning who's the assistant director of gift shops at one of the Smithsonian's. And she's a federal contractor, as tens of thousands mm-hmm. of my constituents are. She said, we live paycheck to paycheck. We don't have a car. And her 19-year-old daughter is trying to save money to go to college. And so we're talking about real people's lives here. They're proceeding with impeachment of Biden for nothing at the same time that they're willing to throw all of my constituents to the wolves. It's just an outrageous situation. Congressman, in 30 seconds we have left. Um, Speaker McCarthy could lose his position as speaker if he can't drum up votes to... um, to get the support of people on on the very right wing of his own party. Is that good for anybody? I mean, you you wouldn't be working with someone who's more amenable to you, would you? No, I mean, we're dealing with an absolute chaos faction, as one of our Republican colleagues described it this week. And we're lurching from crisis to crisis. And it's a terrible thing. But the Republicans right now have got to solve the problems that Republicans create. We'll do whatever we can to help, but they've got to stick to their deals. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. People in San Francisco are paying tribute to California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who died Thursday night at the age of 90 from member station KQED. Guy Marzarati reports on mourners who gathered at San Francisco City Hall. At City Hall, San Francisco Mayor London Breed remembered meeting Dianne Feinstein when she ran the city. Feinstein had invited Breed's middle school band to play at a celebration for the San Francisco 49ers. She stopped by to say hi to us. She made sure she brought over Joe Montana. And let me tell you, that was one of the best moments of my life. Years later, Feinstein, then a U.S. senator, was one of the first people to call Breed when she became the second female mayor in the city's history. And we had a very long discussion about just what she went through, how she made decisions, how difficult it was. Upstairs from Breed, residents lined up to sign a book of condolences for Feinstein's family. Joe Begovich admired Feinstein's longevity, the more than half a century she spent in public office. Spent every single day trying to improve the lives of every single person, all the way until her last day, and I think it's an inspiration to all of us. Propasa Runchai Piram wrote to thank Feinstein for her advocacy of gun safety laws, which includes the 1994 assault weapons ban. 
I think the way that she fight for the gun control, that's the, I think the most important that I remember about her. For John Tupin, it was Feinstein's focus on the little things, the constituent services that he says he'll remember. If you had a problem and you called her office, someone always called you back without fail. Tupin is a Navy veteran. Over the years, he contacted Feinstein's office anytime he needed help figuring out an issue with the VA. She never blew me off. Asked what he wrote in the condolence book, Tupin says he left a letter of, quote, gratitude and thankfulness for the chance I got to be in Feinstein City. For NPR News, I'm Guy Marzarati. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, Boston Fashion Week, Illuminous, and Stiggity Stacks, a one-night-only future fashion experience tonight in Kendall Square. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Donfoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At House or Donfoot.com. Beauty on time. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Many of our listeners tell us WBUR is essential in their lives. They say WBUR makes the world a better and more informed place. We're the news source they trust most. We want to be here for the long term, but our future isn't guaranteed. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Thank you. If you have already made that generous contribution, if you have not yet, we are asking you to do so now. Your monthly contribution goes such a long way towards keeping our journalism strong for you and keeping it strong for the entire community. Your generous monthly contribution has a huge impact uh, because your monthly contributions provide the funding we need to bring you the stories and the conversations that you count on. And as Rupert Shinoy just said, our fundraising goal is for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. And uh, you don't actually have to worry about the other 2,499 of them. You are only worried about you in this case, in the sense that you can go to WBUR, WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. And that's how you start or add on to your monthly contribution to WBUR. There's a lot of noise in media today, and WBUR gives you that clarity, civility, and calm. And as a country, we're tangling with what are probably the toughest issues of our lifetime. At WBUR, we replace that noise with facts, with clarity, like I mentioned, and with meaningful context. But we can't do it without you. Please give back to WBUR. Make your monthly contribution, and that will be a gift that will go into something much bigger, sustaining us for much longer. You can do that at WBUR ubur.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And on Point host Meghna Chakrabarty discusses the focus of WBUR's journalism now that climate change has taken on greater urgency. I think people more and more want smart, brave, and almost plain spoken conversations about solutions because most of us agree about what the problem is. And now people want to do something. And they want to do something not just on the global or, or national level, because we know what those targets are. And that takes a lot of political will. But people also want to know more about what they can do locally. 
So we did this fascinating conversation about the idea of carbon removal, about actual machines that could be part of a future climate solution that would sit there. They look like giant air conditioners, essentially, and they'd suck carbon out of the atmosphere and return it to the ground. Lots of complications around a, a solution like that. But it was fascinating to think about, like, what are the edges that we can lean into and push our knowledge further, push our ability to find solutions further? So if you want to support WBUR and finding the solutions that matter in your lives, give a monthly contribution today. Um, even $10 a month would go a long way to WBUR, and we would actually send you a special gift as a thank you. We have these really cute WBUR umbrellas that say we've got you covered on them, and that means more than one thing. It means the umbrellas got you covered, and WBUR has your back. So for a modest contribution of $10 a month. That could be your gift as a thanks for supporting WBUR. Do we have something else, Sharon? Oh, we do. Oh, thanks for asking, Candace Springer. Why, in <laughs> fact, we do. Um, first, just a reminder, your monthly contribution is what keeps WBUR thriving and, and ensures uh, WBUR's future. So again, the number is 1-800-909-9287. You can also make your monthly gift online at WBUR.org. Now, as as Candace mentioned, we do have something else. If you give right now, you might be able to win one of three limited edition Wait, wait, don't tell me varsity style jackets. It is an amazing find, an amazing jacket. Uh, it, it's the story here is that um, when Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me got its start on NPR, the show created some these leather and wool baseball jackets. Now they created them just for the staff, but uh, WBUR, being curious souls, uh, did some digging around and actually found three of these jackets in storage. Now we're giving you a chance to get your hands on one, to wear one of these. It's really a gorgeous varsity jacket. And high this chance It's high quality. It's got the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me logo. It's it's everything you'd ever want in a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me jacket. This mm -hmm. chance will never come again. But what you have to do is you have to make that contribution, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. And this opportunity ends in just a few hours. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. From Arizona to New York State, governments are struggling to handle a massive influx of migrants. Many of those migrants come from Venezuela, which has yet to emerge from the worst economic crisis in its history. Since 2015, more than 7 million Venezuelans, or nearly a quarter, of the pre-crisis population have fled their country. Reporter John Otis is in western Venezuela and joins us now. John, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. This is your first time back in Venezuela in two years. What do you see? Well, you know, the people who have stayed in Venezuela, uh, they're really struggling. Uh, there may be a little more economic activity than the last time I was here, but 
a lot of things are just breaking down. In fact, right after crossing the border from Colombia to Venezuela, I saw an abandoned wind farm. Looters had stripped away almost everything, even those big blades off, off the wind turbines. So all that was left were these barren white towers. Uh, Venezuela is also trying to get its oil industry back up and running, but that's been hard due to U.S. sanctions as well as uh, a lack of maintenance. Uh, one example is Lake Maracaibo, which is this huge lake in western Venezuela that's home to hundreds of oil derricks and pipelines, but many are broken and leaking oil. Uh, I saw beaches that have turned into oil slicks. Commercial uh, fisheries have thrown out their catches because the fish come up all stained black with oil. So, you know, it can be a, a pretty grim picture here. From what you say, John, it sounds as if Venezuelans are just going to continue to leave their country. I'm afraid so. Uh, it seems like everyone here has several rel relatives already up in the U.S. And meanwhile, it's mostly older folks who are, are staying behind. During my time here, I came across uh, one protest, and it was made up of retirees. <laughs> Now, these are former state workers in their 70s and 80s who were protesting because their pensions amount to just $4 a month. Most say they're too old to start anew somewhere else. Uh, but the younger folks uh, are leaving uh, Venezuela in droves. Among them is Angel Marin. He's 32, married, and has a four-year-old son. He works for a cell phone company, and he doesn't want to leave. Uh, but then his son developed asthma, and, and let's take a listen to what happened next. No hemos podido darle ningún medicamento a él. Todos los medicamentos que le colocaron aproximadamente vienen saliendo como 32 dólares. So here he's saying that his son's asthma medicine costs $32 a month. But if he buys those meds, his family is not going to have enough money for food. So it's really a, a tragic dilemma. And that's why they've decided to sell all their belongings and leave Venezuela. Yeah. And, and when you say leave, the... Their destination is the United States. Do we know how they'd get here? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it is uh, to the U.S. for the most part, and this brings up another dilemma. Because most Venezuelan migrants lack visas, they face two very risky options. The first is to trek overland, but that means hiking through the Darien Gap, which is a roadless jungle region connecting Colombia with Panama. The Darien Gap has seen a record amount of traffic this year, but throngs of migrants have been robbed, raped, or killed. So Angel and his family, they're planning to fly to the Colombian island of San Andres and then take a clandestine migrant boat to Nicaragua and then continue overland. But, you know, those boats sometimes sink and a lot of migrants have drowned along this route. So by land or by sea, these migrants just sort of have to pick their poison. John, is there any event on the horizon that could turn things around uh for Venezuelans who want to stay? Well, many Venezuelans say that the only way to really fundamentally change the country would be to get rid of the current government. President Nicolas Maduro is an autocrat who's badly mishandled the economy. Uh, next year, there's supposed to be a presidential election. And in fact, the opposition right now is planning a primary for next month to decide who should take on Maduro. Um, but even if Maduro were to lose that election, it's, it's really unclear whether he would respect the results if he loses. John Notice in Venezuela, thanks so much. Thank you very much. October begins tomorrow, and tens of millions of Americans who have student loans will have to begin to make payments again. 
after three and a half years suspension triggered by the start of the pandemic. At the same time, though, the U.S. Department of Education is scrambling to prepare for the possibility of a government shutdown. We turn now to NPR's education desk correspondent, Corey Turner. Corey, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. First, given the specter of a shutdown, does a shutdown mean that people who have student loans don't have to begin to pay? In a word, no. Uh, in more than one word, I put that question yesterday, Scott, to U.S. Undersecretary of Education James Qual, and he told me that Congress mandated this return to repayment as part of the budget deal they worked over uh, this summer. So even if House Republicans do force a shutdown, the Education Department is legally required to resume collecting on student loans now. The White House press secretary told reporters earlier this week that in the event of a shutdown, key activities in the loan program would continue for a couple of weeks. Those were her words. If it lasts longer than that, though, she said it could substantially disrupt the return to repayment effort. That disruption won't work like an on-off switch on a light. Think of it more like a, a dimmer. So payments will still be due. Interest will keep accruing. It's really customer service, I think, for borrowers that's going to take a hit. You know, we have to remember, Scott, the Education Department was already in a budget crunch before all of this, so it really doesn't have a lot of extra money sitting around to keep everything going for very long. And, and Corey, you've done a lot of reporting about that budget crunch and uh, and how loan companies are already struggling to handle all the calls they get. Has customer service really gotten any better? Not really. Uh, this past Tuesday, for example, according to federal data obtained by NPR, one loan servicer had borrowers waiting on the phone an average of just over an hour. Another servicer averaged an hour and a half. And for both servicers, it should come as no surprise that more than half of borrowers who called hung up before they got through. Now, in the servicer's defense, everyone I talked to six months ago, even inside the Ed Department, said this would be messy. You know, the servicers are trying to hire more people, even as their budgets have been cut. Most importantly, though, Scott, we have to remember this transition is unprecedented. We've never done anything like this before. Still, I know that is cold comfort for borrowers who are setting social media on fire. And on Friday, attorneys general from 18 states plus Washington, D.C., sent a message to those borrowers, we hear you. They sent a long letter to President Biden himself to, quote, express serious concerns about the challenges of this process and impending harm to federal loan borrowers in their states. And essentially, unless lawmakers take action, a shutdown would clearly make those challenges a whole lot worse. Corey, do you have any advice for people out there with loans who haven't yet scheduled their first payment? What, what should they know? Well, given what we've already been talking about, I think the first best thing I can say is instead of trying to call your servicer, go online to the Education Department's website, studentaid.gov, and see what you can do from there. You can update your contact information. You might well have a new servicer you can find out there. And if you do, you need to then go to your servicer's website and update your contact information there as well. I think one more really important tip for new borrowers who have never before chosen a repayment plan, Scott, if they don't choose one for themselves, which they can do online, 
the system is going to automatically put them into what is arguably the toughest plan with the highest monthly payments. So don't wait. Good to know. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. And We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists. ICABoston.org. And William James College, open house October 4th for careers in school psychology, leadership, and mental health. Scholarships available. WilliamJames.edu. I'm Deepar Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. You can also call 1-800-909-9287. Or again, as Deepa Fernandez just said, you can go to WBUR.org to make your monthly contribution. We are encouraging you to do that right this very second, not only because in general it's a good idea, but because very specifically right now we have a triple match in effect. What does that mean? You give $15 a month, the triple match turns it into $45 a month. But here's the only catch to that. It is available until 945. That's only the next 15 minutes. But when you do make your monthly contribution within the next 15 minutes, it will be matched. These monthly gifts of yours will be matched for a year. It doesn't happen until you make contact. So here's how you do that. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody and with me in the studio this morning is WBUR's Candace Springer. Good morning. Yeah, this is exciting. I love a match. So some generous listeners have given their money to triple match your monthly contribution so you can triple your monthly support to give WBUR the resources we need to keep bringing you the news, the podcast, Podcast, the events, the newsletters, everything that you love about WBUR. You got to get on it now, though. We have a deadline. We love deadlines at WBUR. You have until 945 to get in on this, and you can do that by going to WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. Remember, $10 becomes 30 in the next few minutes, 15 45 and if you can give a larger gift, 100 could be $300. You can support us by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention. And I care deeply about it. And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. 
909-9287 is the phone number. And the website is WBUR.org. And those are the ways that you can take advantage of this triple match that's in effect. Right now, when you make your generous monthly contribution to WBUR, you'll get that uh, the effect of your gift will be tripled. You're, it, we're getting a triple match in effect right now. Your monthly gift will be matched triple wise for a year. Uh, before I get any more tangled up in my words, the point is that when you go to WBUR.org or you call 1-800-909-9287 and you do that within the next 10 minutes, but we suggest right this instant so it doesn't get lost in the shuffle, your generous monthly gift will be triple matched for a year. And these generous uh, contributors who have decided to triple match, that's for a year. They are deciding to triple match your monthly contribution for a year. So even a gift of $10 could go a long way. And we could send you a special WBUR umbrella as our thanks for your monthly contribution. Remember, $10 just becomes 30 in the next few minutes until 945. So you can do that by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, starting your monthly gift of, you know, $10 a month or $20 a month, that's really the best thing you can do to help secure a strong future for WBUR and, and the journalism that is so essential to all of us. Um, and the reason to do that right now in just the next few minutes is because this triple matches in effect. So, you know, your your $15 a month becomes $45 a month. And if you've already contributed, please consider adding a dollar or two to what you give us each month because that will also become part of this triple match. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thanks. This theme song is not by B.J. Lederman, who does our theme music. Somebody. by Al Jarreau and Lee Holdridge, and it's for Moonlighting, one of the most beloved shows of the 1980s. What are you doing? I'm doing what I should, should have, have done, done all along. What I wanted to do, do originally. originally. What I should have done last, last night. Stop that, David! It was a screwball dramedy, thick with, will they or won't they get together tension and music and dead bodies. Moonlighting starred Sybil Shepard as Maddie Hayes, a former fashion model who owns the Blue Moon Detective Agency. Working for her, David Addison. Fast-talking, handsome hothead, played by a young Bruce Willis. It was his breakout role. You are eye crust. The better to see you with, my dear. You are navel lint. Expensive navel lint. You are. Don't go much lower. They'll take us off the air. Moonlighting went off the air in 1989, but no more fuzzy YouTube rabbit holes. It begins streaming next month on Hulu. You're an animal. And you're a sexist. You're a sexist. You know what a sexist is? Of course I know what a sexist is. I'm looking at one. So am I. I mean, it truly was the show of the late 80s. Scott Ryan is the author of Moonlighting, an oral history. Like, it exploded. And most of it had to do with discovering Bruce Willis. Who parlayed his fame from TV into film, most notably in the 1988 Christmas action movie, Die Hard. Happy trails, Hans. Moonlighting also marked a comeback for Sybil Shepard. 
seemed that all over America, people really watched just to see if David and Maddie would just quit fighting and finally fall in love. David and Maddie are mismatched. She is sophisticated. David Addison is, you know, from New York, and he's a punk. But they're beautiful, and they're attracted to each other, and they're the only people they see every day. So, of course, there's going to be sexual tension. Fans also loved Moonlighting because the show loved to get weird. Film noir episodes, a dance episode. The fourth wall came down regularly. Dear David, I read somewhere that you and Maddie were going to kiss and have a big affair. Is this true? If it is, can you tell me so I can set my VCR? Signed, Sally Young. And no modern-day detective show would be relevant without a Shakespeare episode. Written in iambic pentameter. Wither? Pray, sir. Yes, sir. I dare say I did say. Yes, sir. You do say you did say? Yay, I say. But why do you bray? The show also used a tremendous amount of music, and that proved to be the sticking point as to why it took so long for Moonlighting to join the streaming age. Again, Scott Ryan. Back in the 80s, for some of these songs that they used, like they actually called Phil Spector and said, hey, could we have Be My Baby? And like Phil Spector would bring it into the studio and they'd put it in the episode and then Phil Spector would take the master home. Like that's how they got these songs. So it wasn't like there were contracts. Well, there sure are now. Scott Ryan says most of the original music will return along with David, Maddie, and Ms. DePesto when Moonlighting begins streaming October 10th. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. Find something fascinating today and tomorrow, from wearable tech runway shows to hands-on robotics, from industry-leading health experts to the family-friendly science carnival. Visit cambridgesciencefestival.org to find out more. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. Our role is to help make sense of an increasingly complex world. It's to foster understanding, build community, and as often as we can, spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future isn't a given. Contributing 10 or $20 every month is the best way to safeguard our future. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And what is better than the best way to support WBUR? Supporting WBUR while a triple match is in effect. I'm Sharon Brody. Candace Springer of WBUR is with me in the studio. And we are letting you know that for the next five minutes only, this triple match is in effect matching your monthly gift for a year. Give, give now. Get your monthly contribution to WBUR tripled. The way to do it? Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And our fundraising goal this year is for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. Monthly contributions go a long way toward keeping our journalism strong for you and for our entire community. And um, hello, we've got a triple match on the, <laughs> on the board right now. So not only will you help sustain WBUR, but also the impact of your gift goes further. Ten dollars becomes 30 15 45 if you can make a larger gift of 100 that is 300 and just
just four minutes. You have to do it now before this deadline is over. You can do that at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose, work we do with you and for you, and we can only do it with your support. So please donate to this station today. Make your contribution to WBUR by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by going to WBUR.org. Do that now because for just about the next three minutes, a triple match is in effect. Matching your monthly gifts, tripling those gifts for a year. Yes, this is the time. This is the last chance to get your monthly contribution tripled for a year and to become one of those 2,500 new contributors that we're looking for in this fundraiser. So please think about all of the things that WBUR gives to you in your life. News, podcasts, events at City Space, newsletters. Think about everything that WBUR means to you and support us with a monthly contribution. You can do that at one 800 909 or you can go to WBUR.org and we have some really special gifts to say thank you if you do that. We have a wonderful WBUR umbrella to help keep you dry in these rainy, rainy days. It says we've got you covered. We've got you covered with the umbrella. We've got you covered with our journalism. You can get that by giving a monthly contribution and don't forget that gets tripled in the next two minutes. That's your deadline. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 right now. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Give now to get your monthly contribution to WBUR tripled for a year. And you've only got about a minute to take advantage of that. Just think about it. You know, a lot of times when you want to support the things that matter to you, you know, you only have so much you can give. We all understand that. Yes. We're all in the same boat. But think about giving the amount that's right for you and then having the impact tripled. That's what your opportunity is right now for just about the next minute when you go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We have one additional incentive uh, for you right now. A special one. Oh, this one is pretty cool. It's a wait, wait, don't tell me varsity style jacket. It's a limited edition. There's only three of them. And if you give right now, you could win one of these. And it's a crazy story how this came about. Uh, when the show got its start on NPR, they created these jackets for staff, but we found some. We're making them available to a lucky winner. One. 800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a varied selection of species to bring year-round interest to landscapes and gardens. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash Native Shrubs. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Abraham Lincoln may be as close to a saint as U.S. history has ever produced. He was wise and folksy, an eloquent speaker, a self-effacing jokester, a man who sprang from the soil of America and became a martyr for his country and emancipation. But our colleague Steve Inskeep begins his new book, Differ We Must, by reminding us Abraham Lincoln was a politician. And Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition, joins us in our, and I do mean our, studios. <laughs> God, good morning. Um, is there something about contemporary politics that moved you to think this is a time to go back and look at Lincoln? Oh, yeah. I mean, I cover the news and also write history. I go back and forth, and each thing informs the other. Now, I'd be interested in writing about Lincoln and just about any time. I you know, read about Lincoln since I was a kid growing up in Indiana, where he also grew up. Um, but I got this thought to tell Lincoln's life story through his meetings with people who differed with him, who were different kinds of people and disagreed with him. And I did come to understand while covering the news that those disagreements were really, really relevant today. In fact, the title comes from a letter to uh, Joshua Speed, arguably his best friend. And yes. they differed on slavery. things. Slavery. Yes. Speed yeah. was a guy from Kentucky who grew up in a very wealthy, slave-owning family. And as an adult, when he befriended Lincoln, he told Lincoln that he disagreed with slavery in the abstract. He didn't think it was a good idea. He understood that it was evil. But he differed with Lincoln about how far to go to try to eliminate it. And Lincoln effectively said, um, slave owners are like this. They understand it's a problem, but they never vote that way. But then he did say to Speed, his best friend of his life, if we're going to differ on this, then differ we must. Yeah. And he signed the letter, your friend forever. He, he kept working on this guy. And it turns out many years later, when the Civil War comes and Lincoln is president, he got value out of Joshua Speed in supporting the Union. Which is the, the point you make in this uh, series of 16 encounters, that uh, people who were opposed on one issue may not be opposed on all. Yes, which was Lincoln's insight. He didn't ostracize people. He didn't take a Puritan approach to politics where he said, I need to keep myself separate and apart from those people with whom I disagree. He tried to persuade them. That often failed, by the way. You don't always look across the table and persuade the other person to suddenly change their beliefs. But he thought, how can I get some advantage out of this encounter? How can I get some value out of my relationship with this person? And sometimes in remarkable ways he did. Other times he failed, but he kept trying. It's irresistible not to bring up Lincoln's long relationship, really, with Stephen A. Douglas. Yeah. The little giant but a huge political force for the time. They ran against each other for the Senate. Lincoln lost. But 
in a sense, it positioned him to become president. Didn't yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. This is a super famous campaign. And I feel that I need to define this because people yeah. are confused. There's two famous Douglases. There's Frederick Douglass, who escaped from slavery and became a great orator and writer and abolitionist. And then there's Stephen A. Douglas, who's a white man who lived in Illinois and was considered one of the great statesmen of his age. And they ran against each other in this Senate race in 1858, and Lincoln lost but they had these innovative debates. And there was a thing happening behind the scenes that I explore in my writing about this, which to me is a kind of secret history of what was really going on in that very famous campaign. Well, tell us about that. Yeah, he was trying to build a majority in this election. And he realized that to build a majority against slavery, which not everybody was terribly opposed to, even in the North, in this nominally free state. They were willing to accept it. They were willing to accept it. it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Like, to build a majority against slavery, he needed every kind of person he could get, and that even included people who hated immigrants, who were nativists, who were part of these groups called know-nothings. And Lincoln reached out to a friend of his, Joseph Gillespie, mm-hmm. whose anti-immigrant views were so toxic that Lincoln couldn't stand to listen to them at all. He said, if these guys ever get in power, I'd rather live in Russia. But he knew that some of them opposed slavery. And so he worked with Gillespie to bring in all the nativists that he could to vote for him. He didn't endorse their nativist beliefs, but he tried to get their votes. He did lose the election, but he was helping to build this new anti-slavery party, the Republican Party, which eventually changed the country. Lincoln has been criticized in recent years, not just because he wasn't an abolitionist, but because he knew slavery was wrong and was not an abolitionist. And we should clarify, abolitionist in the mid-1800s meant somebody who wanted to ban slavery right away. And there were all kinds of other people who said they opposed slavery but felt that it would have to be gradual, that it was a giant transformation Mm -hmm. in society. And so Lincoln was taking a position, I think, strategically that he felt that he could hold. I'm in a free state. I can't do anything about slavery in the slave states because the Constitution protects it there. But I want to restrict slavery. So he was not an abolitionist. But I think his marking down of the system as wrong makes him in a way a radical. I have to ask you about Lincoln's relationship with William H. Seward, who thought he should be president, who was sure he was smarter than Lincoln. Lincoln, of of course, made him part of his cabinet. He edited his inaugural speech. Yes. Yeah. I I love this relationship. And not lightly. (laughs) Not not lightly at all. No, Seward was this guy who'd been a senator. He considered himself the leader of this new Republican Party. Mm -hmm. He lost the nomination to Lincoln. Lincoln then made him Secretary of State. And just before the inauguration, yes, he shows Seward his inaugural speech, and Seward sends a note back, and he says, this is really magnificent. I only have three problems here. The beginning, <laughs> the middle, Sorry, and the end. Yeah, yes, right, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, those are the only problems. Yeah. And he went through and made tons of suggestions, and Lincoln took a lot of them. How did he take advantage of, I'm sure, the many gifts and a lot of the wisdom William H. Seward had to offer without letting them detract from what he felt he had to do? I think Lincoln had a bottom line in his own mind. This is the moment when he's getting ready to take charge of the presidency. There's a large part of the country that has refused to accept the results of a free and fair election. We don't accept Lincoln as our president because he says slavery is wrong. Even though he says he won't interfere with us, he says it's wrong. That's We can't take it. We're leaving the country. And Lincoln is determined, as he puts it, to run the machine as it is. 
basically saying, I'm taking over as president and I cannot let these people leave. I cannot let someone arbitrarily change all the rules of society. Mm -hmm. Can't be done. And as the war goes on, as this becomes a war, he says publicly, if I could save the Union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. If I could save the Union while freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save the Union by freeing some and leaving others enslaved, I would do that too. But what nobody knows when Lincoln publicly says that is that he had already drafted the Emancipation Proclamation and was waiting for the right political moment. He was a very crafty guy. What does Lincoln have to say to us in these in these fractious times when a lot of people say the last thing they want is compromise or the people who disagree with me are incapable of compromise? I think Lincoln practiced a different kind of politics than many people do today. We hear a lot of talk about base politics. Let's grab onto our most extreme voters and try to grow that extreme voter base mm -hmm. and see what we can do. And certainly some people have won elections that way and seized power long enough to try to change the rules so they can stay in power that way. But Lincoln was practicing a different kind of politics. And it didn't mean getting along with everybody. The guy ended up being president during a war against his fellow citizens. So some people he was not going to compromise with or not able to compromise with. But if it was going to remain a democratic country, somebody had to assemble a majority. And so he needed to figure out a way to reach out to people who differed with him on some things and find enough agreement that they could form that majority. That's a lesson for now. Steve Inskip, his book, Differ We Must, thanks so much for being with us. I'm glad to be here. We don't differ about that. <laughs> I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. And you can also start your monthly gift by calling 1-800-909-9287. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Candace Springer of WBUR is here in the studio with me. You are listening, and we are asking you to become one of the 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. We are asking for your monthly contribution and hoping that you will take up the cause because that's what goes such a long way towards keeping everything we do here at WBUR strong for you and for the entire community. Once again, you make that happen by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. And if you give right now, we have one of the coolest things that are that's happening um, that you just get entered into by giving a monthly contribution. We have three limited edition, wait, wait, don't tell me varsity style jackets. Here's the story. Uh, wait, wait, don't tell me when it got its start on NPR, they created some leather and wool baseball jackets just for the staff. But WBUR unearthed three of them in our storage. And we're giving you the chance to get your hands on one. I don't think this chance is ever going to come again. So if you can give us a monthly contribution before noon, you will be entered to win one of these very cool 
uh, wait, wait, don't tell me jackets. So you definitely want to enter in now while you have the chance. You can go to WBUR.org to make your monthly contribution, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org. And you can also become a member by calling 1-800-909-9287. Starting your monthly gift of $10 a month or $20 a month, that's the best thing that you can do to help secure a strong future for WBUR and for the journalism that is essential to all of us. And for great programming like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, coming up in just a few minutes, we have a special two-hour edition of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You count on WBUR. This is why we're calling on you to make that monthly gift. 1-800-909-9287 or at WBUR.org. But wait, wait, we also have gifts for you if you give us a monthly contribution. Say you give us $10 a month. We will also send you a WBUR umbrella. Really cute. It opens and closes with the press of a button and it says we've got you covered on that. Uh, We've got you covered at WBUR in more ways than one with the umbrella and with our coverage. All you have to do is give a $10 a month gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And Sharon, how about this jacket? And yeah, and so the jacket, just a reminder, we have a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We have three limited edition Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me varsity style jackets. These will never be seen again. You could get your hands on one, but first you've got to go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909 And thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.